Have you ever had a season in life where it just seems like everything is going wrong? Like everything. You know, maybe it's just a day. You know, when the coffee maker breaks, you get to work late, your boss is in a bad mood. Or maybe it's a longer season. Maybe it's a few weeks, a few months, or a few years where there are major setbacks and they just seem to pile up one on top of the other. The book of Exodus begins not with everything going great, but with everything going wrong. And I love it. I love it. Because I can identify with that. You probably can too. And so, you and I need to be reminded of who God is and what God does when everything goes the wrong way. And so if you're here today and you're in that season right now, then take heart. Because this story was written especially for you. If you're new with us, we just started a new sermon series going through the book of Exodus. Let's turn now to Exodus chapter 1, and we'll read the whole first chapter, Exodus 1, verse 1 through 22. If you don't have your Bible with, with you, it's okay. The verses will be on the screen behind me. Verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. Or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sifra and Pua, when you were helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. 
They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is God's word. So Exodus starts off with all the happy endings of Genesis. Genesis ends with great victory, a great time of celebration. You see, Joseph the Israelite had just saved the whole nation of Egypt and really essentially the whole world. And Jacob the patriarch is reunited with Joseph, his long-lost son. Joseph and all his brothers are reconciled to one another. And they move from a land of famine to a land where the grass is literally greener. The children and the animals are all well-fed. Everything is coming up roses at the end of Genesis. But... In the first paragraph of Exodus, all those guys are dead. Even the hero, Joseph. They're all dead. And just a few hundred years after Joseph's death, a wicked king arises in Egypt. And he knows nothing about Joseph, nor does he care. And he enslaves the Israelites in brutal captivity. And then he orders the midwife to kill the Israelite boys as they are born. And when the midwives resist, Pharaoh then issues a command to all of his people to kill every Israelite son that is born. What a way to open a book. I mean, this is wild, is it not? So what's going on here? Why does the author begin the book this way? I mean, Exodus, Exodus ends in total disaster. What happened to Genesis? Everything was coming up roses in Genesis. Why not keep that going? You know, it's the same author. Why not, why not keep that rosy celebration going? Why start off with such tragedy? Well, the author is not just building plot tension here. The author is very intentionally placing before us some very important themes. In chapter 1. And if we can grasp these three themes, it will change the way we view suffering. And it will change the way we view God. The first theme the author presents to us in your outline today is the power of God. The power of God. When you get to verse 10 here in chapter 1, what you see is two great powers set up against one another. On the one hand, you have Yahweh who intends to bless and multiply his people. On the other hand, you have the most powerful man in the world, a new king, a new pharaoh in Egypt. And he intends to oppress God's people, to stop them from multiplying. He's trying to squelch the blessing of God. So, who is going to win? Yahweh or Pharaoh? The answer comes in verse 12. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. 
As ruthless and stubborn as Pharaoh is, Yahweh is even more ruthless and stubborn. He continues to multiply his people. Why? Because he can. He has the power to do so. And even the most powerful man on the earth has no shot at stopping Yahweh. We see this again in verse 15 and following. This time it appears to us like it's Pharaoh versus the midwives, which is a huge mismatch, right? I mean, it's almost silly. But who wins the power struggle? The midwives do. Why? Because it's not really Pharaoh versus the midwives. It's Pharaoh versus the midwives' God. Pharaoh instructs the midwives to kill the sons of Israel. And the midwives are like, nah, we'll pass. Thank you, though. We're going to let the boys live. And verse 20 says, And the people increased and became even more numerous. <laughs> Why is that? Because Yahweh is running this show. Not Pharaoh. Yahweh has the power. But there's something really interesting about the power of Yahweh in chapter 1. We have to infer it. We have to infer his power at work. What do I mean? Well, that brings us to number 2. Theme number 2 in your outline is the presence of God. You see, there's an interesting twist in the narrative of chapter 1. Did you notice it? If you didn't notice it, here it is. Here's the twist of chapter 1. There is a surprising absence in virtually the whole chapter. It's the absence of God. God is actually not mentioned. So we, we have to infer his power and his presence. The first chapter of Exodus covers about 400 years of history. And God isn't even mentioned until verse 20. Not even mentioned. So what's going on here? Does God have more important things to do than be with his people for 400 years? Has he been off somewhere else in the universe doing God things and forgetting about his people? Well, that's certainly what we often think in our lives. That, you know, God gets us off on the right foot. You know, it gives us a little push to set us a sail. And then he goes off and does some more important God-like things in the universe and leaves us to our own devices. But then when tragedy strikes us, or sorrow strikes us, or sin strikes us, then we cry out, God, where are you? Help us! And then God, who is off some billion miles away, says, oh, oh, oh no, they're in trouble. And then God rushes back in to give us a hand. That's what we think is happening with our lives. But is that what is happening? Is that what is happening to the Israelites? No, not at all. In fact, the structure of chapter 1 is very intentionally designed to communicate the exact opposite. The exact opposite. You see, if you were to flip back just a couple pages in your Bible, you would see at the end of Genesis, again, everything's hunky-dory. It's a time of victory and celebration. And there are those same kinds of seasons in our lives. 
you know, the, the coffee maker works. You get to work and your boss is like weirdly in a good mood. Things are going pretty great. Kids are happy. Your friends are happy. Your spouse is happy. I mean, things are going well. And you're like, God's hand is on my life. God's hand is on me. Wow. Everything is good. God must be near. He must be present with me. But here in the beginning of Exodus, everything is wrong. Like, real bad wrong. But you see, the danger is thinking that Exodus is just a story about Moses. Or just a story about slavery. Or just a story about the Israelites. That's really dangerous. Because this story is not about any of that. It's about God. The story is about God revealing who he is and what he does. It's a story about a God who is very hard at work in our midst. Very hard at work. Even when it seems to us like he's a billion miles away. Even when powerful men are oppressing us. Even when babies are being killed. Even when we suffer greatly. Even when tragedy strikes. He is not absent. He is very, very present. And he is silently moving and working in and with our suffering. Not in spite of our suffering. He's working with our suffering to accomplish his wonders. We see this throughout the story of Exodus and throughout the story of the entire Bible. God doesn't work in spite of suffering. He works with suffering. He's in the midst of our pain and our sorrow. He cries with us. And he is hard at work. But what is he hard at work doing? What's he hard at work doing? What is God's power and presence bringing to pass in our suffering and in our weakness? Well, that brings us to our final point in your outline, the promise of God, the promise of God. Now, if you noticed, Exodus begins with ancestor talk. You know, it starts kind of boring, right? Exodus is one of the most entertaining books ever written, but it starts kind of lame, doesn't it? It's like, eh, it's just a bunch of names, hard to pronounce Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali. It's kind of boring, Moses. I mean, couldn't you give us a little more, something with a little pop in it, you know, to get us going in this story? It's kind of boring. It's just a list of 13 names. What's this all about? Well, if you were to flip back to Genesis chapter 12, you will see God making a promise to a man named Abraham. And the promise from God to Abraham is a promise to bless him and multiply his descendants. God says to Abraham, quote, Go from your country to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, end quote. And then at the very end of Genesis, you find the great-great-grandsons of Abraham having hands placed on them, while Jacob offers a blessing. And here's what Jacob says. He says, quote, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, 
The God who has been my shepherd all my life. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless these boys. And in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. End quote. So, in Genesis, we have over and over and over again the promise of blessing and multiplication for Abraham and his descendants. And so, when the author of Exodus begins his book by rattling off a list of names, it's not random. It's not random. These, these names are the sons of the promise. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. They're sons of the promise. And what the author is telling us is that this book, this book is going to be about the promises. And specifically, the God of the promises. And so our first question at this point is an obvious one. Well, now wait a minute, preacher. What happens to the promise when everybody dies? All these dudes are dead by the time we get to verse 8. They're dead. And what happens when a wicked man comes to power to oppress the descendants of Abraham? And when the entire nation is enslaved, what happens to the promise then? And the answer of Exodus is nothing. Nothing happens to the promise. It is alive and well. Don't believe me? Look at verses 7, 12, and 20. Verse 7. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Verse 20, and so God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. Why does the promise continue? After everyone dies and things look so bleak. Because the promise never depends upon us or our circumstances. It depends solely upon God. If you never get anything else I ever say from this pulpit, please get this. Like this right here. Okay? Write this down. Tattoo this on your forearm. We actually have a tattoo artist that comes to the first service. I'll give you his business card. We can all get this tattooed on our forearms, okay? Please hear me. Things will go wrong in your life. Someone will oppress you. You will sin. You will get sick. You will grow 
old. You will royally screw things up. People you love will die. And the promise still endures. It's alive and well. Because it never depended on the success of any of those things. It only depends upon God. You see, Christianity is not built upon our performance, our feelings, or our circumstances. It is built entirely upon the promises of God. Entirely. It's what separates Christianity from all other religions. Unconditional promises. That's what sets us apart. And you say, wait a minute, preacher. You don't understand the loss that I have endured. You don't understand the sin that I have committed. You don't understand my chaotic situation. My hellish circumstances. God is a billion miles away from me, preacher. Well, my response is this. Would you like to know how many Israelites in these days lived and died in slavery and never once saw a glimmer of the promise coming to pass? Would you like to know how many? Tens of thousands. They lived and they died and never saw a glimpse of evidence of the promise. They never saw any evidence. In fact, they only saw a mountain of evidence to the contrary. All they saw. According to what they saw, Yahweh had abandoned them. Totally abandoned them. That's what they witnessed. But Yahweh is a God who does not want you to look with your eyes. He does not. He doesn't want you to see Yahweh wants you to listen with your ears. He's not primarily after your obedience. He's after your ear. Faith comes by hearing. And the reason he wants you to listen to him is because his words are the only things with any power in the universe. His words are the only things in your life that you can take to the bank. Regardless of your pain, regardless of what things look like around you. You can't take your feelings to the bank. You can't take your obedience to the bank. You can't take your circumstances to the bank, but you can take God's words to the bank. And so he wants you to listen to listen to what he has to say. And he wants you then to pray his words back to him. So forget your eyes. God wants your ears and your mouth. You listen to what he says and you pray his words back to him. Later in Exodus, we'll see Moses do this very thing. God will say to Moses, Moses, that's it. I'm done with the Israelites. I'm done. 
All they do is sin. All they do is rebel against me. All they do is worship idols. And so I'm done. I'm going to wipe them all out. And Moses responds and says, Sure, that's a great plan. That's a great plan, Lord, if you want to be known as a liar. That'll work wonderfully if you want people to say you're not a God of your word. So go right ahead. Go right ahead. Be a laughingstock to the nations. Moses says, you can't kill them, Lord. Not because they're not wicked. They are. I deal with these fools every day. I get it. They are scoundrels. <laughs> I get it. But you can't kill the Lord because you promised. You promised. And Yahweh winks at Moses and says, Exactly. Exactly. So maybe you're here today. And you're in a season of struggle, or a season of doubt, skepticism. Maybe you look inside yourself and see no evidence of a changed heart. Maybe you look at those around you and your circumstances and, you know, you see more oppressors than friends. You know, maybe you look at your marriage or your, your, uh, your workplace or... Your various circumstances around you, you and every, everywhere you look is just chaos. What do you do then? You stop looking. <laughs> you stop looking and you listen. For just one second, close your eyes and quit looking inside yourself. Quit looking at those around you. Quit looking at your circumstances. Close your eyes. And listen, listen to the promise. Listen to the ultimate promise of God. The promise that drives the entire biblical story and the promise that is driving your story right now. It's a promise that predates Abraham. It's a promise that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. By the end of that chapter, Adam and Eve had blown it on a spectacular level. Like spectacular. They had just joined an insurrection against the gracious God who breathed life into them. And what did God do to them? What was his response? He gave them a promise. He gave them a promise. He promised that there would come one from the seed of the woman who would crush that vile snake once and for all. And then thousands and thousands of years passed with wickedness and darkness seemingly running the show until one day a small cry echoed into the night. 
from a cattle trough in Bethlehem. Yahweh had kept his promise. He kept his promise. And in a lowly manger in Bethlehem, and on a lonely hill called Calvary, the power of God, the presence of God, and the promise of God were on full display. Yahweh had sent his son to crush the snake by being crushed in our place for our sin and our rebellion against our creator. And now his promise to us is this, that we are his and he is ours. That he will never leave us nor forsake us. And that nothing can separate us from his love and nothing can pluck us from his hand. And it has nothing to do with us or our performance or our feelings or our circumstances. It has everything to do with Jesus. Everything to do with Jesus. Nothing can separate you from the blessings and treasures of God and his kingdom. Nothing. Sin can't do it. Suffering can't do it. Regret can't do it. Doubt can't do it. Loss can't do it. Failure can't do it. Hell can't do it. Even death can't do it. Just like the Pharaoh of Egypt, they're no match for the promise keeper. They're no match. Now, I don't think it's going to play out this way. So hear me, please. I don't think it's going to play out this way, but I almost wish that it would. I wish that it would. You know how some evangelists, uh, they'll ask people, you know, like street evangelists, they'll come up to people and they'll say, hey, when you stand before God in heaven and he asks you why he should let you into his kingdom, what are you going to say? Now, it's not going to go down like that, all right? But I kind of wish it would. I wish I would stand before God. And I wish he would ask me that question because I know exactly what I'm going to say. <laughs> exactly what I'm going to say. When God asks me, why should I let you in to the blessings of my kingdom? I'm going to say, because you promised. You promised. 